football still isn't coming home, but England's socially conscious team have done the country proud and potentially changed it for the better. Sadly, the same cannot be said for the minority of fans who, after the game, flooded the social media pages of free black players with racist abuse. On tonight's Tisky Sour, we'll be discussing the politics of England's remarkable Euro 2020 campaign, what it says about the country and its prospects for the future. To do so, I will be joined in one moment by Aaron Bastani. If you're new to the show, hit subscribe. We'll also be talking in the second half of the programme about the latest on the loosening of coronavirus restrictions. A big announcement today in Parliament from Sajid Javid and then also a press conference from Boris Johnson. First story, though. England's inspirational run in Euro 2020 ended in heartbreak as Italy won the final at Wembley on penalties. Um, despite the sorrow, I think the overwhelming mood across the country was incredibly supportive of England's players. It, to my mind, this response aired on Sky News was, was probably representative of the country at large. As much as we're like devastated, we're proud of Saka and everything that he achieved and everything the team achieved. It's, I mean, like, it's, you know, it's a moment to remember. We got to the final and it's very sad, but we did our best and, you know, it's... What would your message be to go Southgate and the players? Oh my, we love you. Yeah, we love and you. you did us proud for those like 30 or so years yeah. ago. And Harry Kane went to my school, so you know, I feel, I feel attached to him in that way. And you know, I think it was just really unlucky. They went to penalties. It's all about luck. It's, yeah, I think, you know, we thought we had it, but we, it's just, you know, so sad. As I say, I think that is reflective of most people, incredibly supportive of a team who, who got that far and did it in a really honourable fashion. However, um, as I assume you know by this point, such supportive sentiments couldn't protect Bukayo Saka, Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford, the three players who missed penalties from online racist abuse. Now, all three players received streams of racist comments and monkey emojis, really horrible stuff, leading to Saka suspending his Instagram account. I think that's um, live again now, but obviously it was incredibly upsetting for the man soon after that defeat. Also, we've seen a mural of Marcus Rashford, which was defaced in Manchester. That's now been covered and um, with more positive messages. There's clearly you know, a, a big fight back against these racists as well. Now, these examples I've just given you, overt racism, everyone in mainstream politics across the political spectrum and across sport has been condemning it. I want to show you how Gareth Southgate responded to the abuse suffered by his black players. We can only set the example that we believe we should and uh, represent the country in the way that we feel um, you should when you're representing England. And everybody has to remember when they support the team that they also represent England and uh, should represent what we stand for so um, I think the, the players have done that brilliantly and um, we, we can only continue to try to affect the things that we can but we have I think had a positive effect on lots of areas of society but but we can't affect everything there other people have responsibilities in those areas and uh, um, you know, we've all got to work collectively to to constantly improve those things. It was a characteristically thoughtful intervention from Gareth Southgate. He's saying the players have set an example that's had a positive effect, but there's a limit to what they can do. 
I think we should all celebrate players taking the knee. He's basically saying, you can't expect that to end racism in, in this country. You're going to have to have you know, different institutions intervening to stop black players after an important match suffering abuse, you know, um, when they've you know put themselves forward and taken a huge risk by taking a penalty in the final for England. Interesting there, I think he said, you know, we can't do this on our own. Aaron, what did you make of that intervention from Gareth Southgate? He's essentially saying, look, we've done our bit, right? We've, we've done our bit. We have put forward an anti-racist vision of England um, that has had some effect, but we can't stop this minority of fans um, abusing our black players. That's where other institutions have to come in. Potentially, that's the government. Potentially, that's social media companies. What do you make of this? You know, it's a hard one. I think on the one hand, if you're, if you're playing sort of a devil's advocate here, you would say that Footballers in the past have been villainized, demonized for doing the same thing. So one example is David Beckham after the World Cup 98. He was sent off for a, a petulant foul, basically. One might argue he, he, lost, he cost England the game. And in the subsequent season, first few games of the season, you know, there were effigies of the guy. Um, you could say the same about, you know, players who've missed penalties and so on. They've sort of been demonized. What's changed is obviously social media. So the costs of being of being able to get to these people and say outrageous things them has clearly fallen. And I think if if Beckham had done what he'd done in 1998, I think he would have come in for a, a vociferous abuse. Clearly, with these guys, there is this clear racial element to it, a massive racial element to it. I think it is important to say that Michael, if these were white footballers, they they also would have been abused. I think we shouldn't be under any under illusion, under any illusions about that. Where I think there is something really important to say politically is. How many institutions, Michael, can we say in our public life where we have people who are, you know, particularly black players, particularly black players, you know, we don't have any, I don't think a Jewish person's ever played for England. George Cohen, who was in the 1966 World Cup, I think he had a great grandfather who was Jewish. I don't think we've had any British Asians play for the for the national side, but particularly black players who have a, a major role in professional football in this country throughout the football pyramid and also obviously in the national team. This is one of the very few institutions where they're this prominent, where they play this larger role. And I think it's inarguable. Actually, people feel more disinhibited than anywhere else in terms of doling out abuse. So on the one hand, they would be getting, you know, they would be getting all sorts of vile comments, whatever the color of their skin, because people sadly treat, you know, people with a public profile, footballers like that when these things happen and social media has changed the rules of the game. At the same time, it's clearly happening within a broader context. And Michael, I think what's really important is, you know, when, we, when you go back to say two weeks, a month before this tour tournament started, you and I weren't saying it, but people who were perfectly progressive were saying, oh God, maybe Southgate, maybe the England team will sort of step back and won't take the knee and they don't want to be seen as overtly political. And actually they defied that and chose to do it anyway. And I think that's a really, really important choice they made. And in that sense, they've been, they've been completely vindicated. You absolutely have to stand up to these things. Yes, it shouldn't just be for a few games. It shouldn't be, oh, are we always going to do this? Yes, why not? Why, why shouldn't we always see this? You know, the PFA, ultimately, it's the Professional Footballers Association. It, it represents those players. Many of those players are, are players of colour and they clearly feel there's major problems because there are in the national game with regards to racism. And I think it's brilliant that, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in a way straight away. Obviously, it's it's terrible that it's had to happen at all, but, you know, we should be under no illusions. You know, racism in football is, is a huge, huge problem. A huge problem. And yes, you know, okay, there's there's an element of this, which is just social media. Many of these people won't be in the UK. Many of them will have multiple accounts, et cetera, et cetera. 
But my God, we all know this stuff happens in, in stands. We, we've seen this happen and people getting pissed in, in pubs and bars when watching football. You know, there was Julian Rubenstein who said he came in for abuse because he had Rubenstein, a Jewish name, on the back of his, uh, on the back of his England shirt. We, we know this happens. And I think it's really, really brilliant, frankly, that it's, it's not just being given carte blanche or being called out, but actually it's front and centre now of the conversation around the national game. Fantastic. That's really good. But, you know, Michael, Bakayo Saka is only 19 years old and it shouldn't be on the shoulders of a 19-year-old man to, to have to be at the crucible of this conversation, which we should be having as a nation. But, you know, that, 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 that's really terrifying for him. And I think this may sound strange again for, for our audience, but Gareth Southgate ultimately chose a 19-year-old kid who'd never taken a penalty in professional football to take the most imp important penalty in the history of the English game, which is what it was. We didn't win in pen on penalties in 1966. Uh, and I think that was irresponsible because I think this was always always going to happen. You know, Gary Neville said this earlier on today. We'll probably show that. that the second he saw those three guys miss their penalties, important to say, actually, I thought Rashford's was actually an excellent penalty. He just got unlucky at the post. He knew what the conversation was going to be today. Uh, and I, I think for Saka in particular, you're 19. It's an appalling thing to, to have to go through at any age, but I think particularly for him. He's only had, what, one and a half seasons in the professional game as a kid. I want to go straight to some comments because we've got some interesting ones. Ishtak with a tenor says, big up Saka and the lads. The team has achieved more in their short lives than these trolls and racists achieved in a hundred lifetimes. Let them wallow in their own filth. Um, I fully endorse that statement. We've got a question for Aaron. Kryptonium tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. Aaron, you tweeted that the England team are defiantly anti-racist because their generation are increasingly and actively anti-racist because slowly, step by step, the anti-racist mm. struggle is being won from the bottom up. Do you still think so? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I don't think there's any doubts about it. I think the fact you've got a manager who is willing to, to line up and, and defend these players. I think the fact, you know, for me, what summed it up, Michael, was when you've got Sam Allardyce on GB News. I don't know Sam Allardyce's politics. Maybe he's really radical. You know, I, I don't think he is. But given his age, uh, I thought the way he responded to the question about Black Lives Matter was really, really subtle, nuanced, attuned. And I think that really demonstrates as a profound shift in, in, in professional football. And, and it would be hard not to, right? Because this is a game where huge, you know, a disproportionate number of Professional players, sadly not coaches, but professional players are of Afro-Caribbean descent, heritage. And th th so the culture within the game, I think, is actually far more attuned to these things than, you know, uh, a lot of commentators and pundits seem to think. Because it's working class people, like, uh, you know, from Sam Allardyce all the way through to Gary Neville or Jamie Carragher, the sort of backgrounds they come from, obviously now very wealthy people. But I think the assumption is from sort of liberal intelligentsia, oh, that they're not attuned to these conversations. Well, actually, when you work in an industry where, you know, you might be in a team and of the starting 11, five or six of your teammates are, are people of colour, maybe more, right? Uh, massive numbers of young fans are people of colour. Then I think it'd be very hard not to be attuned to these issues. So, so I do think it's, it's definitely, definitely improving. And you can almost see it kind of cascading down. I was talking about this earlier to uh, a colleague of ours, Mike, uh, Michael Gary. Uh, I had a video. And for me, there's, there's already a huge distinction between millennials and Gen Z in terms of their social mores on this stuff. And that's just, that's just a, a cohort of 10 years difference. If you think about the young players, the golden generation for England, Lampard, Gerrard, Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, Michael Owen, Rooney, all different ages, but that that generation, Ashley Cole, that generation of, of players that came through, you know, I think John Terry, for instance, what he did to, um, 
what he did to Rear, um, Anton Ferdinand, rather, race comments he made, I, I think that to me signified a kind of dying culture in football, which they'd inherited from generations prior to them. And I, I do think there's a clear and discernible difference in values between the current England team, generally 27 or younger, generally Gen Z, and even people in their late 30s, early 40s, right? People like Beckham, people like Neville, and Neville's got really good politics, or Jamie Carragher. But the way they conducted themselves when they were players, hugely different to this. And so I think, you know, you'd, you'd have to... You'd have to be blind almost to not see a huge cultural shift in football. And, and we can have a conversation about that. For me, I think it's reflective of broader social changes. Yes. Whilst there are still obviously, I mean, as we've seen huge problems, there has been change. And that is down to you know the struggles of people fighting against racism in football. First, I want to show you polling from Opinion. And it's on the issue of whether or not people support or oppose England players taking the knee. Now, at the start of the tournament, there were already a majority who supported England players taking the knee, despite what what right-wing pundits might say that, oh, ordinary working class people hate this. No, the majority of the country have have been in favour of this since the start of the tournament. And um, positively, that has gone up um, throughout the contest. So at the start of the tournament, there was 50% of people who supported um, taking the knee. That's gone up to 56%. And of people who oppose taking the knee, that's gone down from 37% to 32%. So you're seeing an increasing consensus that players expressing their support for anti-racist struggles at the start of matches is the right thing to do. Another thing I thought was interesting was the front pages of the right-wing newspapers, the right-wing newspapers who were very used to, very comfortable um, promoting racist dog whistles, essentially. They chose not to this morning. So I want to show you the Daily Express. They went with, it hurts, but we're so proud of you. The Sun went with pride of lions. And the Daily Mail went with, it all ends in tears. But they talked about the team as lion hearts to the last. What this is showing to me is not that Britain's right-wing tabloids have suddenly converted to anti-racism, but rather that these are newspapers who, if they don't have any principles, one thing they do know is who their readers are, right? And we know they are very willing to write headlines which are trying to encourage racism against black people if they think that's not going to damage their their business prospects. But it seems to me clear in this situation that the Sun, Daily Mail, Express, they could have lent into this idea um, that there were black players that missed penalties and they should have been focused on football instead of politics. Obviously, we're going to debunk why all of this is completely ridiculous in a moment. But they could have gone with that and they've decided, no, actually, that wouldn't wash with our readers. And I think that does show um, some progress. Now, of course, none of this is to tr- is, is to minimise the problem because even if um, the, the racism we've seen online and in the streets, I mean, this is less documented, um, e- even if that's from a, a real minority of people, that doesn't mean it doesn't have a huge, huge effect on, on black people in this country and black people in, in football. I want to go to a couple of tweets, which I think really made this stand out to me, really hammered home this point. Now, the first is from Marvin Sordell. He's a former footballer, now producer and speaker. Um, so he said on Twitter, the saddest thing is that as soon as three black players missed penalties, we all knew exactly what was coming. You can see there how ingrained this is, how used to racist abuse black people are whenever a, a black footballer makes a mistake. You know, people always say when a, when a black footballer succeeds, that's a victory for England. When a black footballer makes a mistake, that's the fault of of them individually. And this is something people are so used to um, seeing that people knew instantly 
when those players missed the penalty, what was coming. Um, the second one um, is from Jason Okandaya, who we've had on the show before. He's a writer. He shared a screenshot from his family group chat with his mum saying, Evening all. If any of you are out, please get home early. I am begging you all. It is going to be rowdy and violent tonight. All missed penalties were by black players. Now, that's I mean, a really, really heartbreaking thing to share. The fact that we still live in a nation where people are worried about their kids when black players miss penalties, I mean, is is shocking. And however much progress we've had, while that is still the case, there is clearly a significant problem. It's also a significant problem when it's being, when, when this, this racist behavior by a minority is being boosted by people in power, which is the topic of our next section. The minority of fans who reacted to England's loss with racism have been condemned by people across the political spectrum. That includes the Prime Minister, who said, This England team deserve to be lauded as heroes, not racially abused on social media. Those responsible for this appalling abuse should be ashamed now, those condemnations of despicable abuse are, of course, welcome. It would be terrible if we had a prime minister who said, oh, no, good people on both sides, whatever. But do such condemnations ring hollow when they come from politicians who have pursued racist policies and made racist statements? Gary Neville thinks so. Well, I'm just reading you breaking news. It says the PM condemns racist abuse of England players. Is that the same prime minister that a few weeks ago? I mean... Gareth Southgate and the players a few weeks ago, about five days on the trot, told us that they were taking the knee to promote equality and it was against racism. The Prime Minister said that it was okay for the population of this country to boo those players who were trying to promote equality and defend against racism. It starts at the very top. And so for me, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't surprised in the slightest that I woke up this morning to those headlines. I expected it the minute that the three players that missed, missed. And... You know, the fact of the matter is, there is an issue, obviously, in football, there is an issue in society where we feel it's acceptable, basically, to criticise players for sporting actions because of the colour of their skin. But I have to say, you know, accepting and validating that players who take the knee, like I was saying, were promoting equality, inclusion and defending against racism is coming from the very top. And, that, you know, you know full well that if your parents do something, your children will follow. And I'm not saying that each individual person who was, uh, who was obviously directed that abuse towards the player shouldn't take accountability. They absolutely should. Social the social media companies, you know, we know full well now, it's a well-told well story that the social media companies have to come down harder on racist abuse. I think we have to start to isolate these individuals who are attacking the players in a racist manner and isolate them by writing to their employers so that ultimately there is total accountability and there is suffering and consequence. But also that, to be fair, there is consequence within the game through the FA, the Premier League and other organisations, UEFA and FIFA. And we start to see, you know, sentences and, and punishments for these incidents that ultimately fit the crime because people are being abused. And it's absolutely ridiculous in 2021. We're still talking about this, but we are. So Gary Neville, they're saying this comes from the top. He mentioned in in other interviews as well, Boris Johnson's comments about Muslim women looking like letterboxes. He's saying we have a, a racist culture which comes from the top, essentially, which is very different from what's being put forward by, for example, Boris Johnson, who's saying this is just a, a minority of people who need to crawl back under a rock. Aaron, I want to get your thoughts on this. Do you think Gary Neville's right to say that this comes from the top? Yeah, I think 100%. 
Um, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think it would be a more interesting conversation if you didn't have somebody like Boris Johnson as the prime minister. And if you made that same point um, about how Britain, because of course, then the conversation becomes incredibly abstract, doesn't it? But when you've got a figurehead like a Trump or a Boris Johnson, Johnson is not as bad as Trump, but you know he's still pretty bad. Then I think it, it personalizes things and it makes it much easier to, to sort of say that and say, look, these aren't a few bad apples. These aren't isolated incidents. Actually, they reflect a far, a far deeper structural the structural problem. And I think, you know, in, in a way, and, and this might seem quite harmless, Michael, but I think you can kind of look at the problem through the prism of how Harry Kane was on most front pages of most newspapers the day after England played. Now, of course, England didn't lose any of their games in normal time. So, you know, you always had a good front page the next day, had a great tournament. But for me, actually, Raheem Sterling had a much better tournament than Harry Kane. I thought he was probably, in, uh, Harry Kane still had a very good tournament. I thought Raheem Sterling was really exciting. Um, I thought he was really working hard. He's not had a great season with Man City. I thought he was brilliant in this tournament. I think if, he, if England won last night, I think he would have been in the team of the tournament, him and Kane both up front. And, and yet, you know, how many times do we see Raheem Sterling on the front page or the back page of a newspaper? Um, not often. Generally speaking, it was Harry Kane. And he was seen as the talisman of this England team. And, and, and let's be honest, that's because his name is Harry and because he's white. Raheem Sterling is a very a, a telegenic guy. He's very affable. He has a really good, amazing story. And yet he wasn't seen as the talisman. And, and the simple reason for that, Michael, is the fact that he's black and Harry Kane is white, in my, in my opinion. And so I think, yes, that may just seem harmless. It may seem that, you know, oh, come on, Aaron, that's ridiculous. Some people might think that. But I think that does show you uh, the fact that, that clearly we are talking about something quite structural here and quite profound. And... There are lots of people, Michael, in the mainstream media, there's a, at the very least a culture of permissibility. So on the one hand, I think it's true. You've got somebody like Boris Johnson who says outrageous things. And I think that shows a real problem. But I think for me, the broader cultural problem within the media and the political class per se is permissibility. And so I think for me, the big problem is the permissibility. And this is where we end up, right? This is where we end up. And I think that's the, the key takeaway that we sort of have to impress over the last 24 hours. If you have a culture of permissibility, if you allow people to say things and get away with things and, and claim things, which frankly do allow and enable um, and facilitate a culture of racism. Th th this, is where, this is where we finish. A 19-year-old guy on, on, on Instagram being called all manner of outrageous things by anonymous trolls. That's where we end up. And so I think permissibility is the key word for me. I mean, someone who has encouraged that permissibility is, of course, Pretty Patel. Um, she weighed in on the abuse suffered by players, saying, I am disgusted that England players who have given so much for our country this summer have been subject to vile racist abuse on social media. It has no place in our country, and I back the police to hold those responsible accountable. Now, this Pretty Patel, um, who is now speaking out against racism in football, is the same person, the same Home Secretary, who said only a couple of weeks ago that fans have the right to boo players for taking the knee and that she doesn't support um, the anti-racist protests of footballers because she sees it as gesture politics. Now, as we've shown you earlier in the show, actually, those players taking the knee has had a material impact on attitudes to race and racism in this country, which is probably why the Tory party weren't in favour. They, of course, don't have any opposition to gesture politics. They they do it all the time, right? That's what clapping for, for the NHS was while offering them uh, a real terms pay cut. That's what Boris Johnson was doing when he was standing with all of those flags outside Downing Street. This, these are people very, very comfortable with gesture politics. They're just uncomfortable with anti-racist politics. Yet they're all crawling out from under their rocks to condemn the consequences 
of that they're giving permission to racism. Labour have have come out and pointed pointed out some of the hypocrisy of this. Deputy Leader Angela Rayner tweeted, let me be clear, the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary gave licence to the racists who booed to England players and are now racially abusing England players. Boris Johnson and Priti Patel are like arsonists complaining about a fire they poured petrol on. Total hypocrites. In terms of party politics, what you have seen over this tournament is the Labour Party have discovered, oh, look, actually, Gareth Southgate, he's doing something which is potentially consistent with what we want to do and people like him. So we're going to lean into it. Keir Starmer obviously was not capable of of coming up with his own inclusive version of, of patriotism. I would imagine he would have sat on the fence when it came to taking the knee. Obviously, he did it last summer. Since then, he's been a bit more lukewarm when it comes to Black Lives Matter. But Labour now leaning in now that Gareth Southgate has given them permission. Yeah, I mean, we, we've obviously got a bit from um, Angela Rayner there, but not from Keir Starmer. He did do a clip. Uh, people can go and watch it on Twitter. And what's really interesting for me, Michael, is that the way that Gary Neville talks about the issue, succinct, to the point, and he's basically saying what Keir Starmer says is in his own clip, but Keir Starmer kind of speaks in this really strange, multi-kind of um, syllable legalese, and you're not quite sure what he's saying. You kind of, you kind of need, you need to have gone to university to understand what he's saying. And, you know, it kind of really brings home to me the fact that somebody like Gary Neville, who just speaks in the kind of idiom of everyday people, he would probably be a better politician. That's not to say Gary Neville would solve, solve everybody's problems, but it's really interesting for me when you have a politician who, who, who just seems so, just rhetorically, so distant, and you have a former footballer, I mean, in a way, of course, it makes a whole world of sense, um, who actually just get straight to the point in, in terms of how they in, in terms of how they talk. Gary Neville should maybe do some media coaching for um, for Keir Starmer, Michael. He's a Labour supporter, so why not? That, that could definitely be helpful. Um, our final football story for the evening. Marcus Rashford has been a fawn in the side of the Conservatives with his campaigns to feed hungry kids. Yes, that is something our governing party are averse to doing. Now, that context meant that right-wing pundits were quick to jump on the opportunity of Rashford missing a penalty to have a dig at the footballer. One of those was Darren Grimes. He tweeted, Honestly, though, Marcus Rashford, penalties, not politics from now on, eh? Now, that was an incredibly unpleasant response from a professional Twitter troll. It got ratioed um, on social media. It didn't go down very well. And we're not going to go through all of the all of the reactions. I just want to show you one response, which is pretty indicative of the attitudes of, of most people to, to that comment from Grimes. This is Navarro Media's very own James Butler. He responded, Rashford is an internationally acclaimed athlete who has changed thousands of children's lives for the better in his spare time. You're a grifting parasite reviled even by those on your own side. Shut your mouth. Ouch. Um, that tweet, by the way, got a lot more likes than Darren Grimes' original one. Of course, um, Grimes is someone whose whole career is based on creating these controversies, soiling himself in public for attention. We aren't going to spend a segment talking about him. However, the reason this is relevant is because while the likes of Darren Grimes expressed this publicly, there were people in positions of much greater significance who were thinking the same thing and saying it privately. Now, one of those was Conservative MPs, Natalie's Elphick. Now, this is a leaked message to a Tory WhatsApp group. So Natalie Elphick said, they lost. Would it be ungenerous to suggest Rashford should have spent more time perfecting his game and less time playing politics? That's basically exactly what Darren Grimes was saying, but she's saying it in private. 
Aaron, my question for you is how much separates those sitting on the Tory benches from you know, the nastiest trolls on right-wing Twitter. They're obviously not brave enough to say this publicly, but they're saying it, well, this isn't even privately, is it? Because it's to all the other, other Tory MPs. It's not just being whispered under her breath. Yes, it's, it's clearly a spectrum, isn't it? Look, I, I think this is an important thing to say, Michael. Marcus Rashford is famous and he earns lots of money because he's a good footballer. So, of course, the, his priority should obviously be, you know, being a good footballer. But when you're a footballer, you have a lot of spare time, like a lot. You need time for recovery. You can only train so many hours a day. You're only maximum playing two games a week. There's only so much football you can do, right? And so you have lots of time to recover. And what this has been sort of historically is that you get lots of young men, too much time, too much money, uh, developing addiction problems. Keith Gillespie uh, developed a gambling problem. There's one memorable example, Tony Adams with alcoholism. And, and this is a, a repeated theme. And even people who didn't develop gambling addictions, you know, gambling was rife. You hear some of the stories, for instance, with the England teams in the early 2000s of some of the gambling debts they owed each other from playing cards. You have lots of spare time. And what Marcus Rashford has decided to do with this spare time is to basically help the most vulnerable, uh, the most exploited, the left behind uh, people of this country, young kids that can't get school dinners. He's done his book to inspire young people to read. Uh, he's tried to, and he's been successful in changing government policy on a, on a range of issues uh, that have really affected low-income people again, particularly particularly kids. And so that, that's that's how he's decided to spend his time. Now I wonder, do Tories and Tory MPs and and and, and this lady here, uh, Natalie Elphick, was it Michael? Do, yeah. do Tories like this? Would they rather you have a footballer like Keith Gillespie, too much time, too much money, developing addiction problems which destroy their lives, or they could be like Marcus Rashford, and it should be said other footballers too, by the way, he's not unique in doing this, who say, I have this spare time, I have these resources, most importantly, I have a profile where actually I can change things for the better. And Rashford's been very honest about this. He said, look, I might only have 10 years of fame, right? I mean, in all likelihood, that's what will happen, 20 to 30, maybe a bit more if you're lucky, but 10 years of fame. And he wants to use it for social good. What he's doing is very political, Michael. He's playing a very active role as a citizen in the country's politics. They don't want him to do that. And so this nonsense that you got from Natalie Elphick, but also from Darren Grimes, that he needs to focus on penalties and not you know, poverty or politics, it's crap. They don't know what they're talking about. They're snobs who, uh, you know, an original idea in regards to football or actually public policy or actually just helping other people has never entered their heads. So Marcus Rashford is the third fastest Man United player in the Premier League era to reach 50 goals after Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo. Darren Grimes still has his mum do his cleaning because he lives in our basement. Anyway, I want to get back to Natalie Alfick because, as I say, she's the most significant person here. Um, she, I assume, on learning that her private WhatsApp um, message was about to be leak, leaked, um, put this tweet out publicly. So she said, last night, I shared the frustration and heartbreak of millions of England fans. The team gave their all. Congratulations and onwards to the World Cup. Now, why I think this is a particularly pathetic tweet from this Tory MP is that first sentence. Last night, I shared the frustration and heartbreak of millions of England fans. And why I think that's just so cowardly is because she's doing what these right-wing ideological vicious conservatives like to do when they are you know essentially dismissing or abusing black players which is to say 
oh, what I expressed, you might find it objectionable, but ultimately I'm just expressing the will of millions of good, honest people in the country. That's just not the case here, right? I mean, what we see from polling here is that people are overwhelmingly supportive of Gareth Southgate and what he stands for. They're overwhelmingly supportive of the England football team. They aren't annoyed that Marcus Rashford is standing up for hungry kids. They're incredibly supportive of it because the extreme opinions of Natalie Alphick, which is that this incredibly articulate, brave footballer should stop trying to feed hungry kids, right? When she says that, she's not representing millions of people in this country. She's representing a really vicious minority whose influence is massively um, over-exaggerated because we have an incredibly right-wing, billionaire-owned press, right? So, so this idea, I was just sharing the frustration and heartbreak of millions. No, you were just showing yourself to be the reactionary, you know, vicious bigger that you are. That's my bit on Natalie Alphick. Let's move on to COVID-19. As we prepare to drop a new load of restrictions on the 19th of July, the Tory government has been giving out a lot of mixed messages. This is no more the case. And on the question of masks. Now, to jog your memory, this was Community Secretary Robert Jenrick on Sky News on the 4th of July when he was asked if he would be dumping his mask on the 19th of July. Well, like many people, I want to uh, get away from these restrictions as quickly as I possibly can. And we don't want them to stay in place for a day longer than is necessary. We are going to, I think, now move into a period where there won't be legal restrictions. The state won't be telling you what to do, but you will want to exercise a degree of personal responsibility and judgment. So different people will come to different conclusions on things like masks, for example, and the Prime Minister will set out more detail on the, the national policy on some of those restrictions in the coming days. So that was just a week ago. The following day, Boris Johnson laid out plans for July the 19th. They scrapped mask mandates in any and all settings. Now, during that week, I think probably most shockingly, actually, government spokespeople were asked, so what if businesses want to introduce a, a mask mandate if they say you can't come into the supermarket without a mask if Tesco or the London Underground decided that? And they said, oh, well, they'll have to check if that's consistent with equalities law, you know, to suggest that actually um, the government is not going to protect any institutions from introducing their own mask mandates unless it discriminates against people who don't want to wear masks. Right. So it was really an incredibly irresponsible policy, also completely nonsensical to say, oh, you should just take, you know, you should make your own judgment about the, the personal risk you are willing to take. That's ridiculous, because as we've been told throughout this pandemic, you wear a mask not to protect yourself, but to protect other people around you. So the idea that you'd make a personal risk assessment doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It was a stupid policy. Thankfully, then, it seems there has been a bit of a U-turn on this front. Seven days after Jenrick said master, just a personal choice, which you know, is dependent on personal um, risk, the vaccines minister, Nadim Zahar, we went on Sky News to say this. The guidelines that we'll set out tomorrow will demonstrate that, including guidelines that people are, are expected to wear masks in um, indoor enclosed spaces, um, uh, and of course, to remain vigilant with you know hands and and face and and uh, to just remember that if we all act responsibly as we did with the vaccination program the nation came together to vaccinate 80,000 vaccinated volunteers uh, who came okay. forward retire out of retirement and, and to vaccinate we can come together and deal with this uh, uh, pandemic 
in a way okay. that is responsible by, by thinking about our own actions and how they impact other people, including, of course, people who are maybe immunocompromised. Now, that message from Nadim Zahawi is much better than the one from Robert Jenrick, right? It happens to be the complete opposite of what he said. But, you know, the government have clearly got to a slightly better position. They're saying you should wear a mask for other people. They completely abandoned this idea that it's based on individual risk and the risks you are willing to take as an individual. He's also brought up immunosuppressed people, people whose vaccines might not have been that effective because their immune systems don't function as as well as as, as one would hope, right? That's sensible what's being said there. So what prompted this change? It's an interesting question. It could be scientific advice. Often when the government have changed policy throughout this pandemic, they've said, oh, the science have changed. The science has changed. The problem there, the science hasn't changed here. They've been saying the same thing the whole time, which is that you need to wear a mask to protect people around you. And also the idea of getting rid of mandatory masks on the 19th of July is ridiculous. This, This was never a policy which was endorsed by scientists, as you saw actually in press conferences last week, where Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance stood next to Boris Johnson and said they'll still be wearing masks in in public places, in indoor public places. What then does explain the shift? Now, it might not come as a surprise to you that it seems to be that the Tories got cold feet when they found out the public weren't particularly keen on the policies they'd just put forward. Essentially, they were worried it was going to damage them electorally. I want to show you some interesting polling, which I think essentially explains this change of tune. It's from YouGov. Um, They asked members of the public whether they thought face masks should continue to be mandatory on public transport after the 19th of July. 71% said yes, they agreed it should be mandatory. Only 21% for it should no longer continue to be mandatory. So the Tories, by saying that all of all, all of these um, mask mandates will end, they found themselves radically out of step with the public. We can also see here in shops, so when it comes to shops, 66% of the public thought that masks should continue to be mandatory in shops. Only 27% thought that should be dropped, that masks should not be mandatory in shops. Worth saying, actually, the government is still out of step with with the majority of the public here because they're still saying it's voluntary. They're now encouraging it instead of saying, oh, it's up to you. But what the public want and what the scientists essentially want as well is to say, look, let's just let's just keep masks in in places such as the tube and in places such as shops. There's literally no reason to get rid of them whatsoever. I think personally it's going to reduce freedoms if you have people not wearing masks in shops because they'll say, no, we can't have government putting down the laying down these diktats because people need to be able to make their own choices. I think what's obviously the case here is that forcing people to wear masks on the tube really really you know it's not a meaningful freedom to be able to not wear a mask on the tube i mean it's slight I'm, I, I don't want to downplay it it's a slightly meaningful freedom to be able to go on the tube and not wear a mask but more important is to be able to go on the tube and not worry about getting covid-19 because someone is not wearing a mask right so i think net freedoms definitely increased by people wearing masks on tubes the government didn't think so they seem to be coming round to that but only um, because the public disagreed. For me, this has real echoes of you know, the whole, I mean, the shit show, essentially, which was the government's herd immunity policy. They said, look, the sensible thing to do here is to let everyone get the disease, to let it run riot. It turned out the public didn't like that. Exactly the same things happened here. What Sajid Javid wanted to do was say, I'm now the health secretary for Tory backbenchers. That means I'm going to get the public used to COVID-19. We're going to have a policy where we let it run riot so that we can move on. The public have spoken. They, unsurprisingly, don't 
want that. People don't like the idea of encouraging a disease, which we still don't know that much about, to circulate in an unrestrained, uncontrolled way. I want to move on to today because in Westminster we got further news about what to expect after the 19th of July. Um, Sajid Javid spoke to MPs. He introduced what those policies would be um, from that day onwards. And he said this. Mr Speaker, as we make these changes, it's so important that people act with caution and with personal responsibility. For example, everyone should return to work gradually if they're currently working from home. They should try to meet people outside where that's possible. And it's expected and recommended that people should wear face coverings unless they're exempt in crowded indoor settings like public transport. So he's saying there, instead of um, last week when he was uh, talking about you know, putting COVID behind us, everyone needs to go back to work, we should you know, learn to live with it. He's now saying, actually, you should take some precautions, even if the legal um, demands are falling away, you need to take um, you know, social, personal uh, measures to try and limit infection. It's a significant change in tone. It's a welcome one, even if it wasn't a change which was done um, for you know, particularly impressive reasons. They were worried they were going to get punished at the ballot box. So this policy of saying we're going to get rid of all mandatory measures, but we're going to ask you to use your own judgment, this does leave a lot of ambiguities. What, what are we supposed to do? The nightclub is open, but am I supposed to go to it? Right. I, I don't have to wear my mask in the supermarket. So if I find it really annoying, you know, am I allowed to say, look, some people don't really wear, mind wearing the mask. But for me, I find it particularly annoying. Are you allowed to not wear it? You know, how do we make this assessment that we're all supposed to do? What is the common sense in the situation which will um, be in place from the 19th of July? Well, all of these questions, I think, were were put very well by Chris Smith from The Times um, in today's Downing Street press conference. Let's go to that. I think what we want to, to do is get people to uh, think carefully about the ending of the restrictions that we're, we're, we're announcing today and to make sure in the immortal words of, uh, of JVT, uh, Jonathan Van Tam, they don't, they don't rip the pants out of it or tear the pants out of it, I think is what he, uh, what he said ages ago. And I think I said last week, don't be demob happy about this. This is not the end of COVID. Uh, it requires constant vigilance. It means thinking about others as well as yourself. It means th thinking about uh, we wearing a face covering in confined spaces where you meet other people that you don't normally meet, as, as, as I've said, uh, uh, as we said earlier on, and we said last week. It, it means uh, continuing to think about uh, the risk of uh, transmission to the to the, the shielded, the uh, the extremely vulnerable, uh, how you behave uh, with them in in their presence. Obviously, exercising common sense because the uh, the the legal restrictions have come off uh, should not be taken as an invitation by everybody uh, simply to have a great uh, jubilee uh, and uh, freedom from uh, from any kind of caution or restraint. That's what we're saying, and I think. Um, what the scientists are saying is this is the right date or as, as good as any other date to do this, uh, but it's got to be taken seriously and we've got to go as slowly as we, as we can given the, uh, the constraints we're under. And I think that for me, that makes, that makes a great deal of sense. If we held off till September, if we waited, uh, 
to go for the, the legal unlockings that we are, uh, then we'd be doing it, as I said, in a, a context of a great deal uh, more risk from the from the weather. Plus, we wouldn't have the advantage of the school holidays uh, and so on. This is a, about as good a time as any. But to do it properly and sensibly, everybody has got to be cautious. So my apologies, we actually included the wrong part of Chris Smith's question there. The, the question that we saw Boris Johnson there answering was much more about those ambiguities. What should people do? The club is open. Should they go to it? You saw there um, Boris Johnson's answer. He also, interestingly, went on to this point, which there does seem to be agreement about from most um, scientists who are close to the government, which is that the decision in terms of releasing restrictions now isn't whether or not we will have arise in hospitalizations or none at all it's whether we will have an what they call you know an exit um curve as we leave the lockdown now or if we do it in september the example the, the advantages of doing it in september is that there'll be more people double vaccinated the advantages of doing it now is that it's in summer so it doesn't coincide with people in schools and it doesn't coincide with the beginning of winter um so real it's a difficult one in terms of should we be loosening restrictions at all but yeah, this isn't one of those situations where the government is doing something which is obviously terrible. They are when it comes to masks and things like that. When it comes to should we have any loosening of restrictions, I think less so. I do want to go back to that question of how people should behave, though, after the 19th of July. It's politically interesting. It's also practically useful for us to all have an idea of how we should be making decisions after the 19th of July. Unsurprisingly, the answers from Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance were... Uh, more constructive than those from Boris Johnson. So let's take a look at their answer to those questions. I, I think, don't think that um, the things which are going to make a difference will come as any surprise to any anybody in the UK uh, over the next uh, period. The things that we've all been doing for a long time, people have been incredibly good and incredibly patient to doing it, the hands face space thing, wash your hands, cover your face in, in crowded uh, areas, avoid crowded areas where you can, avoid unnecessary meetings, but be sensible on it. And above all, the thing which is new, uh, get yourself vaccinated. It protects yourself, it protects your family, it protects everyone around you. Uh, these are the things that people have done very steadily. And as the Prime Minister has said, uh, the fact that uh, we can move from uh, working at home doesn't mean that we should uh, rush at it. Everything should be done steadily. And it's really a, it's a message about going steadily. Uh, and that's what people have done all the way through this. They've been incredibly good at it, uh, actually, all the way through every, you know, across the, across the country uh, and all four nations. Uh, and uh, that's all we're really saying is carry on being steady. Can I just add two, two to that? One is the absolute necessity to continue self-isolating if you test positive. Very important to stop spread. And, um, uh, and, and if you're symptomatic, get a test. Uh, and in reopening, make sure that ventilation gets a, gets a priority. So summer is quite a good time to do that, to obviously make sure windows are open and, and there's sufficient ventilation in buildings. That was very good advice. <laughs> you know, Chris Whitty essentially saying, <laughs> you know, wear masks, etc. Valence saying the most important thing is here, if you are sick, get tested. And if you do have COVID, self-isolate. I think that's something that actually hasn't been emphasised enough by the government, because I think a lot of people are now thinking, if I'm in contact with someone with COVID-19, they're telling me it's not the most dangerous disease ever. Do I really have to take 10 minutes out of my life because I might possibly have it? The messages here are getting ambiguous, and I think understandably, it's reasonable that we might think that self-isolation for 10 days shouldn't be used in all circumstances now, given that it's a less deadly disease. But it's really important people don't start seeing this as just like the common cold, where if you've got COVID-19 but you feel okay, you can go out and about. 
also ventilation, something that Boris Johnson has never properly emphasised, but Patrick Vallance clearly recognises the importance of. Um, I just want to bring up one final change and before going to Aaron on his thoughts on, on these new announcements, which is on vaccine passports. So you will have known from previous shows that a review led by Michael Gove found that vaccine passports would be unnecessary. So a vaccine passport, this is the the relevant point here is not for going abroad. We know that they're going to be introduced. It's more for going into um, big events, nightclubs, etc. Will you have to prove that you've been vaccinated to get in there. Now, the review from Michael Gove found that that wouldn't be necessary during the summer. It seems to have been a bit of a U-turn there. Obviously, that review was before the Delta variant started spreading. Today, Javid announced that venues will be supported and encouraged by the government to use the NHS app to check the vaccination status of attendees. Um, So it's not going to be mandatory, but clubs will be encouraged to do it. So it's quite likely that um, if people try and go, if you try and go to a nightclub this summer, you might be asked whether or not you've been vaccinated. Aaron, I want to go to your general thoughts on the announcement today. And I suppose especially what you think about this U-turn on vaccine passports. The vaccine passport thing is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's just sort of just sort of creeping in. I think you're right, Michael. I mean, it's important to say I, I do I do agree with the ending of restrictions. I will still, however, be wearing a mask in enclosed spaces. I think going into, even if they weren't mandatory, for instance, in pubs and restaurants as you go in, I don't see really what the, the harm or the downside isn't doing that. Um, I think perhaps even people might, you know, in the longer term, this might sort of create some of a cultural reset during the winter months. If you don't want to get flu, cold, you go on the tube, even if COVID-19, which isn't going to happen, completely disappeared. I think that would be a, a smart way to behave. Um, so it, it is kind of, it is an interesting one. And I, I I don't quite understand. Maybe you can explain this to me, Michael. You know, what's the obsession with not wearing masks? It doesn't seem a particularly onerous thing to have to do. You know, you cannot wear a mask on the bus and you, or, or the train. Uh, it may, like this For this to be like the generating, guiding idea behind your politics, I don't really grasp it. You can, by the way, if you're on the train, you can eat, you can drink, right? And you take your mask off and then you, you put it back on again. Or if you have a health issue, you don't have to wear a mask. What's the big problem, Michael? In terms of what section of the population see it as a big problem, not many people do. So, you know, the overwhelming majority of the public are happy to wear a mask on public transport and would prefer other people exactly. to do so. But the, the people who have an ideological opposition to masks, I think, you know, it's kind of cranky people. It's people who never thought COVID was a big deal. And so, you know, discover their libertarianism when it comes to these arbitrary restrictions, even though they're perfectly happy to have a very strong state when it comes to crime and punishment or things that would never affect them. They're basically affronted that they have had any intervention which they have to follow, you know, which everyone has to follow equally. They don't like that kind of intervention. When it comes to what Sajid Javid was thinking in terms of getting rid of these masks, my theory here is that Sajid Javid entered that role And his key aim was to say, we need to get the public used to getting COVID-19. We need to get the Mm. public to have an attitude where one cannot really avoid getting it. So let's go back to normal. Let's treat COVID-19 like the common cold. So he wanted to, as much as possible, get rid of all the the visual signifiers that were in the middle of a pandemic. And obviously, one of the key visual signifiers that were in a pandemic is the mask. So he wanted to get rid of the mask and say, everyone, pandemic's over. Forget about COVID-19. If you get it, you get it. Think about it like a cold. And that's why he was so obsessed um, with removing that mask 
mandate. What's happened since then is that the scientists have come and said, look, if you if, if you don't even have masks, there's going to be an absolute nightmare. The public have also said, um, we don't care about masks. This just seems wildly irresponsible to us. Sajid Javid has basically realised that you can't at this point persuade the public the pandemic is over because it's not. And the public aren't actually very ignorant about COVID-19. We know a lot about it now. You know, The vast majority of the public know a lot about COVID-19. You can't suddenly click your fingers and lie to them and say the pandemic's over. So they've done a U-turn on that policy. The idea that we can snap our fingers and suddenly no one cares about COVID-19, that policy's over. That's why it's a little bit like that U-turn we saw in March 2020, where the government's policy was to say, we need everyone to relax and get used to the fact that some of their families are going to die. Some of, their, some of their family members are going to die and to just move on and take COVID on the chin. And then they discovered that's impossible. So they had to do a complete U-turn. The same thing is happening here. They tried to do herd immunity mark two in a sort of forget about the virus. Let's just let it happen. People didn't like it. They should have learned by now. I, I don't really know why they thought that was ever plausible. But uh, to me, that's why that U-turn has happened. But Michael, I mean, that was a policy choice. It was, it was a ridiculous policy choice, herd immunity. But it does feel with Sajid Javid on this and the mask obsession that it is purely, and you're saying it's a signifier about this thing being over. I think I agree it's a signifier. But for me, it's just a signifier of this like abstract neoliberal idea of freedom. I think even, I don't really, because they're incredibly cheap. They're quite effective. Like you say, people like them. Um, I, I don't really, they don't really, they have no impact on the economy. I don't, I don't really, uh, unless it is just this abstract sort of, this is a guy, by the way, for, I'm sure our viewers already know this, you know, but, you know, he's, um, uh, such Javid reads, you know, Ayn Rand to his wife every year. You know, this is somebody who is an intellectual, ideological, neoliberal. They don't think the state can do anything. And I think, you know, in a way, you know, because by the way, we have lots of constraints in life, right? If you go on the train and you go not wearing underpants, you're, you're going to get done for public indecency. <laughs> there are lots of constraints in life. And I think there is a part of his sort of politics, this Randian politics. Quite frankly, he would, he would quite like you to be able to sort of go on a train and, and you know, not have, you know, have to do anything. You can say what you like, do what you like. And I think for me, Michael, and you, because we're coming out of this, we forget this. But this pandemic, the last 18 months, has just been a sledgehammer to that whole idea of politics, of sort of Randian ultra-libertarian politics. And because we're coming out of it now, I think we can probably talk about that a bit more. And I think we should be able to look back on that. The last 45 years of, you know, this whole uh, ethics and politics and way of being and say, what the hell was that about? Not only does it not work, not only does it not make sense, but it, it ends in obsessions about the most ridiculous and strange things like not wearing masks after, in this country, 130,000 people have died. The death knell of neoliberalism, the death knell of Ayn Rand. That's what we should be saying, Michael. As we come out of this, we go, what, mm. what the hell I, were you thinking for the last 40 years? I think that's the Julia Hartley Brewer position here. I, I do think that Sajid Javid, it's, it's, it's more cynical in a way. I think it's less honest because I think essentially his priority is we need to get the economy back to normal, back to how it was before because we don't want to normalise government intervention. So he wants us all to flood into the bars so that no more support is needed, flood into the nightclub so that no more support is needed, flood onto the high street so that no more support is needed. He thinks that so long as we think there's a pandemic going on, we're not going to do that. I think his worry was there'd be some cognitive dissonance if you went on the tube with a mask and then you took off your mask to go to a restaurant or a bar. People say, oh, if I'm if I'm not safe on the on the tube, why am I safe in the bar? He wants to get those numbers back to normal. So his theory was, well, we'll just take masks away from everywhere. The mm. problem was he discovered that actually that wasn't going to get people to flood into the bars because they thought the pandemic was over. That was just going to mean that people wouldn't even go on the tube. You know, so, so they completely misunderstood where the centre ground of public opinion was on this one. And they've, they've U-turned because of it. 
again, as I say, that that's why it's a bit like that herd immunity U-turn that we saw in, in March 2020. So you think policy, I just think it's pure Randian ideology nonsense. But, you know, we'll, 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 we'll have a bit of a nuanced disagreement on that, I think. Yeah, I think we can. I don't think that's going to be a, a clincher. There's not going to be a split in Navarra because I think it's for the no. economy and you think it's because of a, a Randian obsession. Let's end the show for now. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure as always. It has been my pleasure, Michael. I just want to say, by the way, because I missed the start of the show, it gave me an even greater appreciation for what you do, Michael, the fact that I had to host a show last week. You are a consummate professional. You're only getting better. I, I very much appreciate those comments. I have to say, my one regret today is that I was hoping that I'd come back from my week away incredibly refreshed. I've actually come back from my week away incredibly hungover um, because of England making it to those finals. It would have been worse if they'd won, I have to say. Um, for now, thank you for everyone for your super chats tonight. If you want to support us directly, then you can go to navaramedia.com slash support. I'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.